Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm talking to Dr. Zachary Gorman, who is Academic Coordinator here at the Robert Menzies Institute. And before he joined us at the RMI, he wrote a book called Summoning Magna Carta, Freedom Symbol Over a Millennium. And this was published last year in 2021 by Australian Scholarly Publishing. So welcome, Zach. A big walk for you from our office to the podcast suite. Yeah, it's good to be back. <laughs> and uh, today we are talking about Magna Carta and uh, not least because it's a, a foundational document for our democracy and the rule of law, but because it does have a Menzies link, doesn't it? And I thought we might start by talking about what the Magna Carta is before revealing this mysterious Menzies link. But tell me about the Magna Carta in layman's terms for those who, let's assume people don't know anything. Uh, <laughs> There'll be well, lots who know lots though. Yeah. Magna Carta is traditionally thought of as the 1215 sort of peace treaty negotiated in a civil war in England when the barons were able to force their demands on the evil King John, who ever since has been portrayed as the worst of the English kings, and there's all sorts of stories around all the things he did, like starving his nephew Arthur of Brittany to death, the arbitrary fines and forfeitures, taking lands from his major barons, indebting them, taking hostages from them. There's even an account in the pipe rolls where one of his major barons' wives offers John 200 chickens for the chance to lay with her husband for a night because apparently he had been so busy sleeping with all the wives and daughters of the major barons that this particular wife was very keen to get back with her husband. <laughs> right. So That's very loyal of her. The extent to <laughs> which... the chickens were appreciated. <laughs> the extent to which that is... Propaganda is always hard to know in these medieval accounts, but certainly the truth of it is that John was extortionate and taxing England to its absolute limit in an effort to gain money to win back his continental possessions because the line of kings, famously you had William the Conqueror in 1066, so you had the Normans becoming the rulers of England and still holding on to Normandy. But various major marriages since then had meant that what was called the Angevin Empire controlled most of France for a time. But John had essentially lost this in the early wars of his reign and was trying to raise money um, to win it back. And it all backfired and the barons rebelled. And then they were able to force him to sign this document that sets up a number of fundamental legal and constitutional rights that are still considered severely important to this day. Amazing. So Magna Carta means Great Charter, doesn't it? And it so it's signed in 1215 on the 15th of June, 1215, at Runnymede near Windsor. And 
it, it sort of comprises various articles, doesn't it? And, and some stood the test of time over others because some are quite sort of in the weeds about medieval feudal law. But talk me through the, the key articles that really remain, you know, contemporarily relevant. Yeah, so certainly a lot of it is very medieval, very yeah. feudal about restricting customary obligations and these sorts of things. But the key articles that survive to this day are the two legal articles, one which is that you can't be arrested or deprived of your lands or exiled or any of these sorts of punishments without the judgment of your peers or according to the law of the land. Uh, judgment by your peers has often been interpreted to mean trial by jury, but trial by jury hadn't exactly emerged by then at the time it more meant that the king wasn't able to by himself arbitrarily punish you he needed to if you were a major baron bring together the whole court and have a sort of collective punishment where everything was done by the book and then the other legal aspect is to no one will we sell delay or refuse justice um so this right to accessible justice which is still fundamental to the rule of law but there are other Articles, those are the famous ones that really set up what Magna Carta means, particularly in the legal community. But there are other ones that certainly hold water to this day. Um, there are ones establishing the rights and privileges of the City of London, very much enshrining concepts of local government and local autonomy. And London had been very crucial to the actual outcome of the Civil War. Right at the end, London came over to the Baron's side, and that's ultimately what forced King John to the negotiating table. There's another clause that allows people to leave the kingdom without the king's permission, which was brought up quite a lot during the time of COVID in Australia's government restrictions about who could travel where and when, which were arguably contrary to Magna Carta. And there's also a crucial clause which says that scutages and aids, which are two feudal tax obligations, they could only be leveraged with the consent of the realm. And it is that nugget which was very quickly removed from Magna Carta. So there's a 1215 Magna Carta and then there's a 1216 Magna Carta and that has already gone from the 1216 Magna Carta. But that is that nugget that ultimately grows into the American cry of no taxation without representation. Of course, of course. And a scootage was... A shield tax, essentially. So yeah. when the um, king is pulling together an army, he is owed a certain amount of money from each of his um, lords. And John had been guilty of calling scootages for wars that didn't actually exist. So he'd make up... <laughs> He was going to go on this particular war, get all the taxes for him, and then decide he wasn't going to go on it anyway. So this right. is this is the sort of arbitrary whims of just John doing what he liked to get as much money as possible. And of course, doesn't repay, give give people a tax refund if he or rebate, I should say, if he doesn't go to to war. But it's interesting with with. 1215 Magna Carta, um, this doesn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, these barons who gathered together at, at Runnymede and they revolt against King John, he's such an awful king, he's an authoritarian, a tyrant. They were drawing upon a rich history that had developed of rule of law in Britain that, that the king should not be above the law, but it's it's written in this contract basically, Magna Carta, isn't it? Yeah, so there's some precedents for Magna Carta. There's something called the Charter of Liberties under Henry I. 
and there's also what are known as the laws of Edward the Confessor, which there are sort of are semi-mythical. They're, the documents called the laws of Edward the Confessor are pretty much contemporaneous with the 12th century. They're written up not during the Anglo-Saxon times, but rather in this Norman period of history. But they're nevertheless taken to be true. Magna Carta, as a sort of longer-term narrative, is a story of history and mythology coming true. So people thinking that they're owed certain rights based on history, even if that history is a little dubious, um, they then invoke that history and able to win recognition of those rights, which is something that's very important uh, in medieval thinking because medieval thinking was very against anything novel or new or reasoned from the abstract. You had to have this historical continuity of why you were owed certain things. And it's interesting that it's French barons, it's uh, French-speaking barons who obviously had come over with the Norman conquest that sort of gotten rid of all the pre-existing Anglo-Saxon machinery of state to a certain extent. They were claiming these Anglo-Saxon rights when it came to something like the Lords of Edward the Confessor. And they had a certain snobbery about they certainly didn't speak English and they weren't necessarily too fond of the territory which they conquered initially. But by the time you get to King John, it's 150 years later, they're still speaking French, but increasingly the barons in England no longer hold lands in France, which is a very crucial fact. So back before John, barons would have been more inclined to support John's wars to reconquer France because it would have been about defending their own lands. Now they're not really concerned about it. They are gradually becoming more English. And even if they don't necessarily respect Anglo-Saxons by themselves, when they discover this pseudo-history of the laws of Edward the Confessor, they're more than happy to seize upon it and claim these rights based on that, that appeal to history and custom that's so central to the medieval mindset. And, of course, it's to their, to their significant advantage. So, so Zach, what, what are the, the big legacies then out of, out of this contract in 1215 that we experience today? Well, I think you've got to talk about it evolutionarily, that it's not just the Magna Carta of 1215 that's important. It's, it is those reissues. Soon after Magna Carta, John gets Magna Carta annulled by the Pope and they go back to... And how does he, how does, how does he convince the Pope to annul Magna Carta 20, 1215, I should say? Uh, well, basically because it had been forced on him under duress. And John has this complicated history with the Pope where initially he had refused the Pope's choice of Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, and John had been excommunicated after many years for that refusal. But after the first of the baronial rebellions, where things are all turning against John, he actually completely flips and then gives England to the Pope to receive England back as the Pope's vassal. So they've got a very close relationship by that particular point in time. And considering that John is holding England as the vassal of the Pope, the Pope has no vested interest in weakening the powers of the crown. Sure. So John dies pretty soon afterwards, after the annulling of Magna Carta, and you have the eight-year-old Henry III who comes to the throne. And he is obviously not able to rule for himself. He rules with the assistance of a couple of people, William Marshall, 
who to this day is buried in the Inns of Court, because Menzies was inducted into the Inns of Court, a very direct legacy that you could sort of see how Menzies would really tangibly feel this history. Another was Hubert de Burr, who was actually Lord Warden of the Cinque Ports. Oh, we're familiar with that, yes. (laughs) Which a post that Menzies would famously later hold. And in this Regency period, these leaders feel the need to rule through consensus, get these barons back on side. The barons are initially talking about bringing in the French Prince Louis to become King of England. So there's this need for appeasement, there's this need for conciliation. They reissue Magna Carta with some of the dodgiest stuff taken out that they don't really want to give, particularly the security clause, which is the way in which Magna Carta was intended to be enforced because there is this big philosophical dilemma of how do you impose law on the king, who's actually above the king. But it is in this era that you develop these precedents that laws need to be approved by parliament, and it starts being called parliament in 1236, which is French for speaking together, and that taxes need to be approved by parliament. And one of the first ways in which uh, taxes are approved by parliament is when Henry III comes of age, he wants this new tax to fight a war to protect what is left of the Angevin French possessions. And what he actually gives over in exchange for the tax is a reissue of Magna Carta that is now far more fundamental because it's not issued under duress like it was under John, it's not issued in the name of a minor like it was in his regency period, but it's now finally issued in the king's name and something that is more substantial. And um, the Magna Carta keeps being reissued, doesn't it? And we get, of course, to the significant one for Australia in 1297. Yeah, so 1297, this 13th century is really crucial for the evolution of Parliament because not only do you have it starting to be called Parliament and it starts to be called Parliament to distinguish the larger council of the whole realm from the more personal council of that is essentially acting as the ministry of the king. And there's a whole series of battles in the 13th century where the barons actually try to take control of those ministerial positions, actually have a certain sort of pseudo-responsible government where they're able to dictate who is going to be in the ministry and be able to sign off on legislation. And this ultimately culminates in Simon de Montfort and this seizure of power against the king, certainly ruling to some extent in conjunction with the king. Not It's not Oliver Cromwell, it's not an utter deposition, but certainly seizing all the power from the king. And Simon de Montfort is the first to call the Knights of the shires and the burgesses of the towns into parliament. So the first to call what becomes known as the commons into parliament. And these are elected officials demonstrating and representing for the whole of England shire by shire, which is is certainly not democracy in the modern sense because who is actually electing them and it is not based on population, it's based on geography. But it is proto-democracy to a a real um, surprising extent And de Montfort ultimately gets defeated and he gets drawn and quartered and they absolutely mutilate his body and all the rest of it because they're trying to erase him from history. But the lesson that de Montfort teaches, which is that you need to represent what is essentially England's burgeoning middle class, then can't be ignored. And in the 1297 issue of Magna Carta is a time in which Edward I tries to raise a tax without actually taking it to 
a parliament not having any permission for it and he faces a rebellion and he ultimately has to back down and he issues Magna Carta in 1297, signed off by a full parliament, including the commons. And from then on, you're going to have the commons represented at each of these tax supporting parliaments, but ultimately the commons are taken as the consent of the realm from then on. And also 1297 is really important because the 1297 reissue is the one that goes on the top of the books of medieval statutes that people are reading, say, in the 16th and 17th century into the Stuart era. Whenever they open a legal textbook, number one with a bullet is Magna Carta. So it really establishes itself and as it's this, this pride of pace. And it's this 1297 version yes. that is number one. Is that the final version then of Magna Carta? Yes. So it, it, it is not necessarily reissued, but parliaments in the preceding century, certainly before the War of the Roses, established this um, principle of essentially confirming Magna Carta at the start of each parliament, just to be like, these, these are our rights and we're not even going to start talking to you until you acknowledge these rights. And in this manner, there's something like 44 to 50 confirmations of Magna Carta over the centuries. Right. And so this 1297 version is important because um, fast forward oh, quite some years, almost 800 years, um, 750-odd years, Robert Menzies is Prime Minister of Australia and an opportunity uh, presents itself for Australia to acquire a copy of Magna Carta for a fairly grand sum, and uh, and it's of one of these 1297 versions, isn't it? Yeah, so this school, the King's School in Somerset, and it's always the case with these medieval documents, they always turn up in the most unlikeliest of places, that someone they're in someone's basement and they've been yeah. sitting there for a couple of centuries. So this school in the late 1930s discovered... That's, but you know, Zach, that's the whole basis of Antiques Roadshow, of course. Of course. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Why, it's such a good show. <laughs> to have history that went longer than 250 years. Um, so, yeah, they, they discover this copy of Magna Carta and the school is struggling for cash. So they take it... When they realise what it is, when they realise it's an original copy of Magna Carta to some de- degree, then they probably don't know which particular issue it is originally. They take it to be appraised by the British Museum. And the British Museum really wants it because they understand why the 1297 issue is important and they don't have a copy of the 1297 issue. They've got the 1215 issue, they might have the 1225 issue, but at this particular moment in time they don't have the 1297 issue. So they offer the King's School a sort of paltry sum that's £2,500. It's more... So we're talking 1951 here. So it's, you know, it's not nothing, but it's, it's, not, it's nothing, not a huge but, sum. Uh, yeah. There are other historical documents. Uh, there's not been a Magna Carta sold yet, but there are other major historical documents that are selling in America for far larger sums. And the... People from King's School ultimately take it to, I think it's called Sotheby's, which Sotheby's. is Sotheby's, yeah. which is still around today. It's actually a company that's now a global company selling mainly sort of jewelry and fine arts and these sorts of very high end items like copies of Magna Carta. Yeah. And they appraise a higher figure. They give it £12,500, which is still arguably 
on the cheap and certainly as far as how the value of the document has been appraised since. It, um, it's well above inflation how valuable it has become. And the Australia's National Librarian, Harold White, hears about this. He seizes on the opportunity. He tries to negotiate to bring it out. They've never actually sold a Magna Carta outside, or sent a Magna Carta outside of Britain before, outside of a loan to the United States, which was a very big deal. It's a very big deal to let something so precious outside of Britain, but at least they have the argument that this time it's within the British Empire. There are all sorts of negotiations as far as the National Library can't raise the money, it's not in their budget, and they can't find private donors. So Robert Menzies decides to write it off as an expense of the Prime Minister's department rather than in the regular budget of the National Library. The people at the British... It's interesting that doing that because, of course, you know, you think about Magna Carta and how that it's sort of one of the one of the uh, the basis of um, no taxation without representation and you think a, a Prime Minister exercising some sort of prerogative power <laughs> to charge to the taxpayer uh, for his department um, a fairly a fairly mighty sum in 1951 of, of uh, £12,500. It's certainly not a purchase that we, we would question in today's day and age we'd see it as value for our heritage and history but it is curious that that was the nature of the way the expenditure was approved <laughs> so that yeah so uh, um there's a couple of things in that first of all it is approved by the opposition so it's actually the announcer it, there's a real formality to how they do it. So the announcement in Parliament that this purchase is being made is not made by Menzies because it's not meant to be partisan in any way. It's actually okay. made by the Speaker oh, okay. because it's about the tradition of Parliament. And That was e- wise. That yeah. was wise. He'd learned the lesson of King John. <laughs> and Evett e- um, really lords it. Evett's really... Because Evett has a historical mind. Evett's written history books. Abbott lords it and says it's such a powerful symbol of freedom in an era of so much totalitarianism. But there are some Labor MPs that said you could have sent a printed copy of Magna Carta to every school child in the country for far, far cheaper, and that would have been a better use of the money. It's very much Menzies' blue polls. Oh, totally, yeah. Gough Whitlam um, buys an infamous painting that is now worth a lot of money, but whether that is what the government should be spending money on, it's sort of like that for Menzies. But they still... It's, it's No, I think they're entirely uh, comparable. So Gough Whitlam in 1973, he buys Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles for I think $1.3 million, which in 1973 is an enormous, enormous quantity. Of money, you know, enormous, and it was the first time I think the Australian government had ever spent that much on a piece of art, and he justified it as well. You know, Australia should have great art galleries, and this is about being a great nation and a progressive nation. Uh, but it was hugely controversial at the time, and of course, it's now in the National Gallery of Australia. It's one of the the things you go and see is the is Jackson Pollock's blue poles and it's obviously driven many you know 10 20 100 times more income in tourist dollars so there's there was an investment there but likewise you know the critics would say well you you know what else can you do with 1.3 million dollars in 1973 so there's always a question of money for utilitarian things which is quite an australian 
sensibility versus money for for history or for art, which is about culture and and you know it was quite Menzian really in terms of um, encouraging civic mindedness. Yeah, it certainly speaks to Menzies' personal interests, and I think that it's quite an exclusive club that Australia ultimately belongs to having a copy of Magna Carta because while the Americans might display a copy of 1297 in the Library of Congress, they actually borrow that from a private American benefactor who actually owns it. So as far as governments are concerned, there's only two governments in the world that own Magna Carta and it's the British government and the Australian government. That is fantastic. And tell me, because I think this is quite interesting, how it gets to Australia. So we so we do the deal, Menzies, Menzies gets the Speaker to stand up in Parliament and announce that Australia is going to spend £12,500 uh, to acquire the 1297 Surrey Magna Carta from King's School in Somerset. But it it's not easy to transport it because obviously, it's obviously a very, very valuable document. You don't want to just put it in, you know, Royal Mail. Yeah, well, it's... <laughs> Registered post. <laughs> the British Museum actually initially had made sure there was as much red tape as possible to getting this thing out of the country because they never wanted it to leave the country. They wanted it to end up back at the British Museum. And they ultimately decide that in the 1950s, planes aren't reliable en- enough, that there's too many instances of plane crashes. But even beyond that, that once it gets on the road, then there's too many incidents of car crashes. So they insist that it is transported first by ship and then by rail to Canberra. <laughs> and when they get it there, there's this big opening. And for whatever reason, I think Menzies might be in England at the time, but it's actually Paddy Menzies who's there for the opening. And they open it up essentially like it might have been a sarcophagus from ancient <laughs> Egypt or something. It's a very big deal. Yeah. And, and there is several years of sort of restoration work and stuff before it actually goes on display. But it, the whole thing is very much charted in the newspapers. People are very fascinated by this. This is a time in which this Whig triumphalism history was still taught in Australian schools. People knew what Magna Carta was and the history behind it to a far more profound extent that they necessarily do today. And and was the the reception in Australia in large part positive? I mean, you say there was bipartisan support for this, so that, that sort of neuters at least any partisan political points criticising the purchase and the arrival and the, the sort of lauding of, of this copy of Magna Carta. But what were the newspapers saying? What were, what were Well, the, the criticism from the Labor press was less to do with the purchase per se but more the sheer irony of Menzies who had just been attempting to ban the Communist Party and introduce things with that Communist Party ban that overturned the burden of proof and sort of arguably completely undermined due process as was understood to have evolved through the common law. Um, it was more that sort of angle that they really attacked Menzies on. It, it's funny. <laughs> There's uh, some... Some records here of um, of Menzies when he's I think he's he's congratulating the Library Committee, presumably of the National Library, of having re- acquired this remarkable and historical document. And he says Magna Carta gave expression to one of the two great principles of law, the rule of law, the basis of free democracy. And apparently, Mr. Ward, Labor from New South Wales, I'm assuming Eddie Ward, the yeah. firebrand 
responds, that seems humorous coming from you, the greatest destroyer of civil liberties in this country. So yeah, there was a there was a sort of a partisan flavour, but as you say, it was sort of overlaid with the attempts to ban the Communist Party and that being considered by Menzies critics. Um, and, and ultimately in the judgment of the Australian people as an inherently illiberal thing to do. So we, we have this copy of Magna Carta in Australia and have since um, the 1950s. It, it normally sits in Parliament House, I understand. Can we go and see it today? So I haven't been to Parliament House recently. The latest I could find on the internet was that in 2016 it was taken away from for repairs and I think it had um, a heavy year in um, 2015, no doubt. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it was well, 800th they, anniversary, I, I, I or at least ver- of the they, original. <laughs> they very much delayed the the repairs until after the 800th anniversary. And coincidentally, it's worth mentioning that Menzies was in England for the 750th anniversary, and that that was um, very widely commemorated and a big deal. And I think it is actually Grimwade or someone at the University of Melbourne, from what I read, that's actually responsible for the restoration. So we'll see how that goes. That's oh, a lot well, of... that, that's very exciting. So maybe it's here in our midst. And I, we don't, I don't we think don't... they would have transported it. I think we would have heard <laughs> well, about if that. Well, if they had transported it, it obviously wouldn't have been done by plane or car. Clearly, way too dangerous. <laughs> but what's that's been the impact of, of Magna Carta on Australia beyond this document and the excitement and, and, and the like, but in terms of the principles and how it has been referenced in Australia? Well, there's two things to sort of talk about. There is the legal consequences and then sort of the constitutional consequences. So the legal consequences are that those two key legal concepts are very embedded in Australian common law and even Australian constitutional law, even when they the High Court did overturn Menzies' ban on the Communist Party, part of the discussion was about the rule of law and about ultimately Magna Carta. Um, Justice Isaacs in 1925 on the High Court says that it's Magna Carta rather than the Australian Constitution that ultimately gives each Australian citizen the right to life, liberty, property and citizenship. So, There is that sort of legal legacy, though it must be said that people have this, the man on the street has this popular, populist image of Magna Carta defending their rights and being able to go into court and say, this is contrary to Magna Carta and be able to really have that recognised by a court. And that's simply not the case that Magna Carta, there's a huge constitutional argument that runs through the history of Magna Carta as to whether it should be fundamental law above other statutes is something that really can't be overridden and can't be touched. Um, This comes up in the time of Edward Cook in the early Stuart era. It's also brought up by William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania, who is the first person to publish a copy of Magna Carta in, in what becomes the United States in the New World. But ultimately that tradition dies out in the British history, so it's not fundamental law. So any new statute can override Magna Carta. So standing up in court and saying something is contrary to Magna Carta doesn't really hold water um, particularly well. Um, But then there is that constitutional evolution that it had that specific clause that a couple of specific types of taxes required consent of the realm in order to be enacted. And that grows over the years to become, firstly, the demands in the Stuart era for the sovereignty of 
the king in parliament and the need to pass acts through parliament so that ultimate victory that is really only secured through the glorious revolution of 1688 that is all derived very much initially from arguing for what were considered to be Magna Carta rights. It starts with Edward Cook, who's very insistent that what he's arguing for is this ancient constitution, is the rights of Magna Carta. He, he claims things that aren't in Magna Carta at all. For example, he claims the right to utter free speech in Parliament, which Parliament didn't even really exist. In 1215, it was more this sort of concept of the Grand Council. But it, that idea, as I was saying earlier, that idea that the mythology begets reality, that yeah. they, they think that all these rights like habeas corpus are attached to Magna Carta and they argue for it and it wins recognition and it wins recognition in a way that is far more profound and strong because it is based on the pseudo-history. Mm, so It's it, mythologised, isn't it? So there's a, the, legal, the legal ideology that comes out of it is sort of really based on a myth largely, whereas the historical context is kind of a little bit, what's well, a bit sort of dull in some respects. <laughs> well, the, legal, the legal principles still hold water in the sense that J.C. Holt, who's the preeminent historian of Magna Carta, says that Magna Carta is the history not of a document but of an argument and the argument is that power and authority are subject to the law, that yeah. um, things have to be according to process, things have to be approved. And th- these legal principles, again, fundamental to things like how the Australian Constitution is interpreted, mm. they, they, they still matter. But then on the more directly constitutional side, as far as the rights of parliament to control taxation and to have power over legislation and these sorts of things, there are a mythology that um, comes true, and they equally come true as far as um, the American Revolution in the early stages, what they're very much arguing for rights um, based on Magna Carta. So James Otis, the first person to say no taxation without representation, directly cites Magna Carta for this claim. And it's only because the English ultimately reject their claims to English rights that Thomas Jefferson and these sorts of figures have to appeal to natural rights and these really the John Locke and these new ideas that really didn't exist up until the sort of early enlightenment period they're very new idea that you can reason rights from the beginning rather than actually having rights that have to be grounded in history and grounded in real precedent and there's a huge thing uh, that goes into that it doesn't just begin in the enlightenment there's all sorts of theological debates about freedom and the necessity of freedom that I sort of chart in my book that goes along with how the idea of freedom evolves. So how do these enlightenment values and, and rights and freedoms marry with Magna Carta then, which is, which is just about the law as it is and it should be that, that no one can be above the law, the king can't be above the law, the law is, uh, is, is you know, preeminent well, in the early Enlightenment, you get the emergence of contract theories of government, which is people philosophizing about why did we set up governments in the first place? Well, we set up it up for our personal security so there wouldn't be violence. We set it up to protect property, to protect the rights of the individual, and therefore the government has no power to do anything that doesn't fit into that original contract, that doesn't fit into why it was set up in the first place. Whereas in the medieval period, kings ruled through 
ideas of divine right and this idea there's a the book of Samuel, um, the Israelites originally had no kings, but they asked for one and then they were sort of damned to have kings for all eternity. And in Romans 13 in the New Testament, it says that all earthly authority is derived from God and you must obey people. So there is this important shift, but there's the there's a real back history to it that you have people like John of Salisbury in the 12th century arguing that, well, you can't obey all earthly authority because what if you are compelled to sin? You ultimately need freedom to be able to win salvation for yourself and these Christian concepts. And even once you get to John Locke, John Locke is arguing for freedom from Christian tenets initially. His, his argument starts that um, man is created by God and is still in a manifest sense his property and from that you get the right to life which you can't destroy God's property you can't take your own life you can't take others lives you can't destroy God's property the right to liberty is freedom of action is necessary to preserve yourself to preserve God's property and finally the right to property is necessary to sustain yourself he talks about even in the garden of eden you needed to pick fruit and that the effort of picking that fruit made it your property because you needed it to survive. And without the Garden of Eden, without numerous abundance, you have to grow your own vegetables and you need to have the right to property to be able to secure when you plant a tree that you actually have the rights to that the produce that comes from that tree. So the, all of this, it, it's, it's amazing the sort of backstory into how you get to modern conceptions of rights and the, all these secular ideas that we really take for granted as... Um, being based purely on reason, that there was a lot of um, more fundamental concepts that it took to get here. Absolutely. So Robert Menzies speaks, uh, we should get back to Menzies, I think. Um, Robert Menzies speaks quite a lot throughout his career about about Magna Carta, which doesn't come as a a huge surprise, being someone who had a obviously a very strong legal background but also a great appreciation of history and the foundations of of our democracy and parliament. So why was Magna Carta particularly important to Menzies? What what did he what did he say about it? Well Menzies was a very much a lawyer. He's schooled in law. It's interesting um, it speaks to how much Magna Carta gets inculcated in the American psyche and the American conscious that Menzies' copy of Magna Carta in the Menzies collection here at the Bellevue Library is actually published in Philadelphia. It's by it's um, it's an American lawyer sort of analysing Magna Carta with a publication from 1900. So he's he's very into that idea. There's a broadcast he does as part of his Forgotten People broadcast on Law and the Citizen. And he says that if freedom means anything, it means justice under the law, that ultimately having these legal rights, having due process is how you actually have secure freedom, that the the real tyranny of Nazism, apart from everything else, is that the Gestapo and the judicial system don't defend anyone's rights, that it is ultimately about the party and the state, there's no protection for the individual, and that ultimately the law's greatest benefit, I quote, is for the minority man, the individual. So there's that aspect of it. But then Menzies also very much respects it as it ties to this greater struggle for history. He knows that, um, for example, he he says that the barons in 1215 didn't know anything about democracy, but they laid the foundation for democracy and their ideas 
were picked up by other intelligent men and really fought for and evolved. Uh, we sort of skipped over it, but it was um, Magna Carta was very important in the fight for self-government in the 19th century in Australia. People like William Wentworth, there would be annual petitions on Australia Day calling on the British government to give Australia Magna Carta and what they meant by that was trial by jury, was independent representative government, was control over taxation, these sorts of things. And ultimately, when that is won in the 1850s, it is won partially as an acknowledgement of rights that outlined in Wentworth's Declaration and Remonstrance, which cites the Taxation of the Colonies Act 1778 as the Magna Carta of the rights of all British colonies. And the Taxation of the Colonies Act 1778 is a really interesting document because Basically, it's a document that gets released by the English when they realise they're going to lose the American Revolutionary War and they basically say, we'll give you what you want, no taxation without representation, just come back to us. And obviously the Americans are too far gone by that stage. Yeah. But yeah. Australia is actually able to claim that right directly from what happened in the American Revolutionary War and ultimately based on James Otis's claims that are based in Magna Carta. It's, it's all our entire sort of system of government is inextricably linked to this same story. Yes, and, and our history could have been quite different if we'd responded to that differently, yeah. uh, wouldn't it? Um, so so Menzies talks a lot about rights and, of course, um, in, in Britain, they have their Bill of Rights in 1689. In Australia, we don't have a Bill of Rights. It's a perennial debate. It hasn't come up in very recent years, but it does come up from time to time. Do we have a Bill of Rights? The United States has a Bill of Rights attached to, to their constitution. Um, Menzies was pretty opposed to a written Bill of Rights and sort of really referenced Magna Carta for um, not needing that and that through Parliament, the people could decide what what their rights are or, or rights should be or not. But yeah, tell me tell me more about Menzies' views on a Bill of Rights because it's very interesting. Yeah, so Menzies very conveniently for me because I don't actually mention Menzies in the book, but Menzies ends up completely agreeing with the entire premise of the book, which is that it is um, culture and history are really important in securing rights. That this mythology and this narrative create norms and make rights normative that they mean that all of society ultimately recognizes them and are going to defend them and that's the real treasure of the British historical and constitutional legacy that Menzies has a lot of respect for it's not necessarily the institutions in an abstract form it's not just parliament but parliament that ex has existed since 13th century and really one recognition for itself and proven its worth. It's these real Burkean ideas that deeper the roots of an institution, the more powerful and um, better it ultimately will be. And that's certainly true historically and even in modern society, you see how difficult it is to transplant democracy. Mm. That democracy takes a lot of buy-in and it, it's one of the things that's happening as sort of the United States unravels and people aren't sure about um, whether elections are legitimate. Elections are ultimately run on trust. They're not really run on, you know, the AEC being scrutinised. It's more about us trusting the AEC. It's sure. about us trusting that um, people who are raised in Australian culture or became naturalised Australians who are working in the AEC are going to um, stay within the bounds because they believe in the system and they believe 
Um, they believe in freedom and democracy and all these sorts of things. And this is very much Menzies' argument. He takes, so you have the English Bill of Rights, which you have from the Glorious Revolution in 1688, which is essentially meant to not be a revolution at all. It's meant to just enunciate and put, um, make clear things that the English should always ha- had as rights, which of course they hadn't, but again, this mythologized rights. Menzies was of the opinion that society had moved on from that, that once you got genuine democracy, which he actually says genuine democracy only was completed with the enfranchisement of women in his own lifetime, which is notable that he um, notes that. Once the people are actually exercising power for themselves, it's outdated to have restrictions on what the people can and can't do, and that it's ultimately what he calls a spirit of freedom that will defend rights, that it's it doesn't matter what's written into a constitution. It doesn't matter um, what you put into writing. If you can't get that cultural recognition, if the people don't buy into it, the words aren't worth the piece of paper that they're written on. And you have, um, say, the contrast with the American constitution where you have this Bill of Rights and you have the Supreme Court arguing in, and interpreting those bill, those bills of rights, which has obviously very much politicized the judiciary and has all that sort of toxic angle. Yeah. But even beyond the politicization of the judiciary, the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Bill of Rights has evolved tremendously mm. over the years based on societal norms and how society views these particular rights. So it's sort of been borne out um, in the history of the American Constitution, that it is ultimately about society to determine what freedom means and why it's important. And in things like COVID lockdowns and stuff, we have to make these, it's society that makes these decisions and very rapidly. Indeed, indeed. But um, Menzies' conception of, um, well, the, the lack of a need for a written Bill of Rights because, you know, you could place faith in in the people to determine what what they believe the nature of their freedom should be. I mean, it's, uh, I think, would not satisfy a lot of people who would not have faith in the public and <laughs> in the judgment of, of the polis and that they would want some assurance from the law of a written document. And that's, that is the tension, isn't it? Do you have a kind of a, um, idealistic vision of, of people being able to assert, assert their freedoms and rights? Or do we need the letter of the law and and then the judiciary to to defend it and imply it and um, interpret it, which comes, of course, as you say, with the problems of politicisation of judicial decisions and you know, implying rights that that might not be there. Just on that, Menzies was not an idealist. As far as Menzies really felt that democracy was something that had to be looked after, that you. This is why he did so much to expand tertiary education and to talk about the responsibilities that comes with citizenship. So he's very aware that it's the people won't defend their rights and won't know the right their rights and do the right thing unless you do stuff to make them do that, unless sure. you, you foster that culture. And it very much something that Henry Ergus points out is that culture comes from the same root word as agriculture and it ultimately means to cultivate and you need to cultivate this spirit of freedom yeah. if we want it to survive. Yeah, to um to to create an educated nation so that it can engage in a rich democracy and and discussions about uh 
you know, how we want our society to, to progress and develop and function. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gorman. It's been a pleasure to have you once again on Afternoon Light to discuss Magna Carta, Menzies and, and all in between, Bills of Rights and lots more to discuss in the future. Of course, we've got um, Lord Jonathan Sumption, former uh, Justice of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom coming, who has many views on these topics, which we will continue to prod and probe. So thank you very much. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you. Thank you.